0: Hmm. Welcome to the Moose Room, everybody. OG3 is here, and we have a guest. And it's another connection to the Dietzel family. Lost Lake Farm, LLC in Iowa. Get some cheese. Visit the website. Buy their cheese. So good. Uh, Joe Lawrence is with us. Joe is from Cornell Extension. He's an extension associate there where he specializes in forage management. And we're not talking about forage today. Not really, which is kind of crazy, but thank you for being here, Joe. Yeah, thanks for having me. Joe, kind of give us a little bit of background on how you got into our topic today of uh, land development Um, and land planning. Joe. Just, I'll get there, I'll get there. (laughs) Just, I want to get a little background first.
1: The county I live in, in the northern part of New York, I'm involved in some uh, volunteer work with economic development. And so we we started being approached the last few years about solar development based on some initiatives from New York State to increase renewable energy. And so that topic and the idea of putting solar panels on agricultural land and the impact that was going to have on our ag, ag industry kind of overlapped with with my uh, extension job and I got interested in the topic and started trying to put some numbers to what kind of impact this might might have for us.
0: So that's the topic today. We're going to be talking about land development, land planning, some of the other things that, that go along with how you figure out, is that a good idea? Is it a bad idea? Are we getting too far ahead of ourselves? That kind of thing. Before we get into the topic, we have our two questions that we ask every guest. So Emily, take it away.
2: Yay, the super secret questions. I don't know which one to do first, but I'm just going to go for it. And I should preface this by saying Bradley and Joe will tell you there is a right answer to these questions. And I'm here to tell you they're liars. No. So <laughs> first question is, Joe, what is your favorite breed of beef cattle? Beef
1: cattle? Beef cattle? well i i might get kicked off the podcast for saying this but i I already told joe that i'm not much of a cow guy i'm I'm more of a crops guy but uh but i have to say even though these aren't a real uh, probably a real uh, popular production animal as a we had a dairy farm growing up and we had a couple scottish highlanders as pets so they kind of uh hold a special place to me even though they're probably not the uh you know most desired beef breed you're not the first person to say it. I was gonna it, so say
2: I. Correct. We have gotten that answer before.
0: Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. No, uh, that's a it's a popular popular answer when I talk to people not on the podcast, but we really selectively choose who's on the podcast because we need to make sure the totals stay correct uh, for for Bradley and I. So uh, with that, the totals on the beef side: Angus at eight, Hereford at six, Black Baldy at four. Belted Galloway at two, Scottish Highlander now at two, and then all with one, Brahmin, Stabilizer, Gelvy, Kianina, Charlet, Simiton, Nolore, Jersey, and Normandy.
2: Next question, Joe, you may have guessed it. What is your favorite breed of dairy cattle?
0: Well, again,
1: going back to uh, the family farm, I'd probably just have to kind of be boring here and say Holstein.
3: I'd agree. That is kind of just boring.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will say, the last few years, my dad milked cows before he retired. He we rotational grazed, and he started getting into some creative mixes um, uh, as he, you know, pursued pursued the grazing side of things. So we ended up with some interesting animals on the on the farm towards the end there. But that was uh, it was it was all based in a Holstein background. So
0: well that's disappointing the correct answer is jersey if you were wondering but uh
2: (laughs) they're wrong they're wrong holstein is a wonderful answer
0: all right totals there holstein's at 12 now unfortunately jerseys at nine brown swiss at five montbelliard at three dutch belted at two and normandy at two all right that's the totals those are important questions let's get back into the topic topic is land development land use planning solar, mostly talking about solar farms and things like that today. At least when I was in practice, I started seeing them everywhere. And I, what, what brought Joe to the podcast, just for everyone, a little background, is that Joe emailed me after listening to one of our early episodes, I think it was episode 11. It was way back, about a year ago, maybe more. We had briefly talked about on that podcast, is it the right thing to do? Like, why are we taking agricultural land and putting up solar farms and taking that away from pasture or corn ground or anything else. Uh, and so that's Joe was was emailing because he had also had some similar thoughts and had written an article about, you know, is it the right thing to do? So the, the first question for me is, how do you even go about making that decision? I mean, I know that I'm probably biased that I'd love to see everything stay agricultural land if, it, if I had my option. Right. But how do you know whether or not it's the right decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's two answers to me, because I, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge the landowner's side of this, and um, certainly these renewable energy projects can be pretty lucrative to a landowner, and if you're talking to a a struggling farmer, um, setting aside a chunk of land and leasing it for something like this could certainly have significant financial benefits to the farm, so that, I think that's important to recognize too, but on the flip side, when you look at it, kind of at the bigger picture of what agricultural contributes to the economy, I focused in on dairy, The uh, New York's a pretty heavy dairy state and the county I live in is very heavy in dairy. There's been a couple of different attempts over the years to kind of uh, quantify the economic impact of, of milk production and there's a study from Cornell that uh, developed an economic multiplier of uh, 2.29 dollars uh, circulated in the local economy for every one dollar of gross milk sales. So I use that as a starting point. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how uh, the economic activity of one dairy cow. Um, if you if you make some assumptions about her milk production and you know what the milk price is, you can you can uh, figure out, all right, what, um, how much activity does she generate? And then I took it a step further and tried to put it on an acreage basis by saying on our prime farmland, it takes about two acres to support a cow and her replacement. And the numbers I used, using the 2020 Cornell Dairy Farm Business Summary, I, I came out at the economic impact of $10,900 per cow or if we do that over two acres $5,400 per acre of economic activity for every cow that's supported in this area or in any area and so I kind of made the argument that if we were going to convert any acre out of agriculture we could look at that $5,400 value or adjust it accordingly for different quality land soil types and stuff and say, will this new use of the land generate more than $5,400 an acre in economic activity in the community? So that's where I started. And then the focus has been solar. That's a hot topic right now, but I,
0: to me, you could use that same logic for any land use conversion. That makes sense, because I mean, for every dollar going in, how many dollars come out of the dairy industry? How many jobs are provided by the dairy industry? And it's, it's an amazing number it's a massive industry that we can't afford to to diminish a whole lot because of how many jobs and how much it stimulates the economy Mm -hmm. so seeing those numbers and and seeing that uh it just yeah you know personally when i drive by i get this terrible gut feeling that i just saw okay there's this land that's now being used for something that's not agriculture um that that very well could have benefited a lot of people so i definitely understand the the argument on the on the personal landowner side for sure. I mean that's money in your pocket. I'm just my question is always is this the right way to do it. So I like that you're using the the, the numbers and you go straight to the numbers to figure out if that's the right way to go.
3: Well, and that's you know that that's the thing that's really missing with a lot of this land use stuff as we and I'm sure somebody's looked at economic output or or the financial aspects of it probably not farmers or or not others but you know, That's sort of what's missing in all of this is nobody ever tends to think about it from an economic standpoint and an economic driver. There's lots of other benefits that we think about, environmental benefits, but nobody's thinking about it from also that economic advantage.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about this in the past too, is that, and and maybe Joe's like to comment on the record where we talk about this, is that it feels like we're just rushing everything and saying, okay, uh, there's money to be made, let's do it. And that's the total. I mean, I totally understand that. I mean, I can't argue with that that motivation. But are are we hampering ourselves down the road when we are worried about having enough agricultural land feeding this country and the world? Are we getting ahead of ourselves? Are we are we pushing it a little fast?
1: I mean, I'll, I'll start by saying I do support renewable energy in general, um, for sure. Uh, I don't want to come across as being negative, but I do think that. We could be more strategic and and plan, you know, kind of planning this out. And that right now there's almost like a bit of a land rush um, because of the incentives out there, because of the the goals set by different states and federally to move to renewable energy, which I'm all for, but it's created a bit of a land rush. And unfortunately, our prime agricultural soils are also prime sites for something like solar because they're already clear, they're generally relatively flat land. You know, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy place to start. But I, you know, I do fear that it it's gonna come back to bite us, you know, perhaps with the second generation of solar, we'll be much more prepared to to incorporate more land uses and think more strategically. But I do think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit
0: right now. That's the feeling I get. I and and like Joe said, I think we're and I don't want to speak for Brad and Emily, but I think most of us are in favor of renewable energy. We just want it to be, want it to be done in a strategic way that thinks you know, don't think about today, but think, you know, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, so that we're being as efficient as we can when we know that land and prime agricultural land is going to be and is already at a premium. That's the hesitation, not that it's renewable energy, but that we might not be doing it as strategically as possible. So before we get into the, the, the kind of the, the way to merge these things together, can, let's talk about just alternatives to solar for a second. And maybe, um, especially when we're talking about wind and how we can use that, how that plays in and what that looks like on the land use side, because I think it's significantly different than the solar side.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and actually, coincidentally, the, the county I live in hosts the largest wind farm that I'm aware of east of the Mississippi River. And uh, you know, so I've used that as a contrast because it has been interesting. I mean, wind farms get some negative reactions too. There's a bit of that not in my backyard type um, attitude. And they and they are, you know, that you can see them from almost all vantage points of the county, right? They stick out um, for sure. They're quite tall. But when we think about farming around those towers, you have the base of the tower and the access road is essentially what gets developed and you can continue to farm around them. And so based on some numbers I found, uh, when when you consider the footprint of a wind farm, it's about one to 2% of the land that actually is getting developed and is no, no longer usable for agriculture. So the the math I did using the local project and the numbers I was comfortable with, we were looking at approximately 0.65 acres per megawatt produced of land being taken up by the wind towers and the, the other infrastructure. And in contrast, most of the estimates that I found for solar is five to seven acres per megawatt. So it's about a ninefold difference in uh, in the amount of acres that are actually inaccessible for production per megawatt.
2: Joe, I'm curious. Have you also looked into, or do you know, you know, the general cost comparison between putting up a wind turbine versus you know putting up solar panel?
1: No, sorry, I can't share, <laughs> uh, or I don't have great numbers on that, and partially because when I have tried to look it up it the efficiencies vary so much um, depending on where you are in the country. Um, I mean, a lot of people ask me like New York state, it's cloudy and snowy most of the time, where you know, <laughs> does solar even make sense? And with the efficiency of the technology, the numbers do show that it does make some sense, but certainly it's not as efficient as it would be you know, in, in the plains or something like that. So so I haven't been able to nail that down real well because it, it's very geographically dependent.
0: Uh, and I mean, Bradley, you have, well, Is it it's two two turbines now up at, at Morris that you kind of work around in your system. The, to me, it makes sense. They are, they are loud, I'll tell you that. We've tried to record some stuff and make some videos underneath those wind turbines. They're loud, but other than that, I mean they seem like they're not all that hard to work around.
3: No they're they're, they're not at all not not at all yeah outside of sometimes uh, if you're outside but I don't even really notice it anymore I think once you're there and get used to it you don't really notice the noise anymore unless you're it's really windy out and you're standing right underneath it.
0: <laughs> not much else to say about <laughs> it they're not really in
3: the way. <laughs> right right they're, they're they're not in the way and you know it's it's those things generate a lot of if we're talking from a farmer perspective or from a land use perspective you know those are power companies putting large wind farms up and stuff because those those things are expensive you know they're millions of dollars per one and they generate a lot of power megawatts of power whereas solar is a little bit different you need a lot of solar to compete with a, a 1 megawatt wind turbine so it it's going to it would take a lot of land to, of solar panels to compete with a wind turbine. I guess it you know, it just depends on where you're at in the country, whether the sun's gonna shine, whether the wind's gonna blow. It, there's just a lot of factors that go around with whether, where, where those things are gonna be at uh, in the US.
0: So Joe, the, the thing that I think about with solar all the time is, okay, the reason we're using agricultural land is that it's relatively flat, it's already in prime locations for solar, and it's just easy to access. But I, I feel like we have all these other flat surfaces in our world that are not agricultural land that we're just not taking advantage of, right? I mean, you see solar on the roofs of barns all the time to, to help supplement the energy for that farm. Why does it have to be agricultural land? Is it just that much easier to, to get access as opposed to the roof of all these corporate buildings and or... Uh, grocery stores, WalMarts, like those are also flat areas that have no trees around them. that could also be used, utilized. So why why do we see it really encroaching on the agriculture side?
1: Um, the two points that I kind of come back around to are one, it, it is really simply low hanging fruit; it's pretty easy, and and two is scale. You know, at least in our area, the the project we have, New York State has uh, kind of two programs. One one is for smaller projects which are usually in the neighborhood of 15 to 25 acres and then there's some large scale projects which could be hundreds or even thousands of acres so while i totally agree with you on all these roof surfaces and stuff and some of these buildings are quite large you're still maybe only talking a couple acres of roof surface and so you need a, a quite a patchwork of those to come up with the 20 or 200 contiguous acres of of farmland that you could you know can fairly easily come by in many agricultural areas
0: now we have to talk about combining things the compromise the the what you know bradley's been working on finding ways to have solar panels be used in multiple ways and or just be out of the way enough for agriculture to still happen That's what we need to talk about is that I think this is probably one of our solutions and that's what gets me so fired up when I see some of these solar farms going up is that there is an opportunity. To still use some of that land or maybe even most of that land as agricultural land or at least pasture um, if we were thinking far enough ahead Joe can you kind of walk me through if we were going to do that, how, how would we have to set it up so that we could we could use this for both purposes.
1: I think to me the two questions we have to ask ourselves are are the products we're going to get from the you know if we turn this agrivoltaics are the products we're generating are they can they produce the same sort of revenue I mean no disrespect to sheep but there's a fairly limited market to my knowledge unless we really develop that industry and so while we could graze a lot of sheep under solar and and we have Plenty of talented uh, farmers who could manage that. My question is, what's the market of the product, and and how does that compare to what the dairy cow was generating, you know, in the economic activity per acre? I know there's also been some work on like vegetable production under under them, and a lot of it comes back to just trying to get agreements in place with the companies, uh, the developers, on. I think Emily already mentioned it. The height of the, height of the uh, panels above the ground, the spacing. You know, they do a lot of calculations of the the uh, slope of the panels and how far apart the rows of panels are to kind of maximize the the solar um, energy they're going to get from that footprint. So if they have to make compromises and put the panels further apart to uh, accommodate agricultural activities, I, I think could be very well justified, right? But we also have to recognize that it can potentially decrease the efficiency of the project for them. So I'd I'd just like to see more numbers, I mean, uh, on the market's side of it, honestly, because I I tend to feel like we have plenty of talented farmers and and extension folks and, and whatnot that can figure out how to make these systems work. We just need to make sure the products we're producing under the panels actually are marketable and and can, you know, we do a profitable farm. Yeah,
0: that's that's a, a good thought. And I, I think that um, it brings up a good point. This used to be dairy land or it used to be beef land. And you, you can't then raise sheep and call it equivalent, uh, you know, exactly the same thing. And, and especially when we're talking about the economy, I, I'm really excited about some of the stuff that Brad's doing with the shade and being able to show that the solar panels are not only, generating, there's a benefit in both ways. They're generating power, but they're also helping the cows. Brad, I know we covered it in a past episode, but, uh, you guys are actually going to dig into it a little further, right?
3: Yeah. We're going to do, do some more exploring with that, looking at long-term effects of agrivoltaics and also look at the winter time, you know, in the, well, Northern New York, uh, in the upper Midwest, we have winter and, you know, can we use them as uh, wind, wind breaks? So there's some new technology called bifacial solar panels. We won't get into all that where we can maybe utilize to get solar on both sides and use them as windbreak and out in the pasture. So we're going to look at that. And I also think that we can get to the point where we can start growing crops under them. You know, there's some exploring in Europe about doing that where, you know, can you grow small grains or can you grow corn if you raise them? High enough above the ground to, you know, get a combine under. You can generate energy and still grow corn or soybeans or whatever crop that you want. So I think there's lots of opportunity. We talk about land use. You know, there's there's double land use. You can use it for solar and still still farm it.
0: Well, and I I think that something that I've read recently, and, and this might be even be something one of your grad students said, Bradley, that that there in Europe some of the the research is saying that it might actually benefit the crops growing underneath the solar panels because they aren't getting blistered by the sun 24 seven necessarily. So it might actually be beneficial to the crops.
3: That's right. That's right. I think there, there, there may be some benefits there to, to uh, looking at that and exploring that.
0: Not to be a downer or anything. And I feel like we're all doing a very good job of being an advocate right now, really gung ho for the agriculture industry. But I think, there is a point too, and Joe, I think you can talk to this that, yeah, there is some land that probably is better off as a solar farm, and there's there's not really a whole lot of argument there for some pieces of land.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. I, I threw out that example of two acres to support a cow and her replacement. You know, we certainly have some marginal land that's still used for dairy production, where it can take you know upwards of 4 plus acres per cow to support that farm and when we when we get into those scenarios the economics start to be in terms of the regional or community economics it starts to be a wash or even even can start to shift towards the solar actually generating more per acre than than the cows can if it's going to take you 4 or 5 acres per cow and then my other argument would be, you know, that's uh, there's a higher environmental impact to using that land to um, support cows as well, because we're we're running off over a lot more land for the same basically output, right, on the milk side. So I do think that's you know needs to be talked about, and I again it goes back to respecting the landowners too, and if that's that's the land that's been in their family for you know several generations, and they. They've made it work, even though they probably know it's not the best quality land. Then you know they have their interests there too. But but from a community economic standpoint, you can certainly start to make the argument that solar could be actually be a more
3: advantageous for those locations. If you think about it from a practical standpoint, in you know New York, what what are you seeing out there today? For you know, are are you seeing solar? go up uh, for grazing or other land use uh, in an agriculture perspective what what's the landscape look like in, in New York now unfortunately we're seeing very little of that right now outside
1: of uh, Cornell University actually has some solar panels on their land and and we have a few researchers working with some agrivoltaics stuff but in a commercial setting unfortunately we we're just not seeing where the planning is being done or the developers are being forced to to make accommodations to allow for that i have talked to some towns and and counties where they they are looking at changing their zoning laws to make sure companies will accommodate that but uh, we haven't seen much of it yet we have a few companies where they're taking sheep around to different projects and and uh contracting with the developers to for basically for vegetation control under the panels, but I wouldn't call it a, a real robust um, agricultural production model. It's you know, I think it's more of a service oriented model where the developer is is utilizing that for vegetation control instead of hiring
0: someone with you know a lawnmower and a weed eater. <laughs> That makes sense. And I I think the the areas that I get most excited about for this and especially agrivoltaics are those areas where it is kind of marginal land, Uh, maybe marginal land on the dairy side. A lot of those marginal land areas where we are seeing maybe production isn't great for the dairy animal. Those are wonderful places to grow grass. And that's where I bring in my beef producers. There's a lot of areas of the country short on pasture and New York and Minnesota are very similar states outside of New York City. And so like I I feel like that's probably an issue up there as well, because marginal land um, is wonderful for grass, wonderful for grazing beef cows. So I feel like there's still a way to incorporate cattle, at least, you know, like I've said before, a lot of people forget that dairy and beef animals are the same species. Um, But yeah, I think that's a that's a wonderful place where I would love to see agrivoltaics because we also need shade for those animals. And like Bradley talked about windbreaks, if they're going to be out there in the winter as well.
1: I think that's a great point and this this is a bit of a tangent but several years ago there was some work done here in New York at Cornell where a a graduate student looked at your food footprint um, and and having beef and meat proteins in your diet versus like a vegetarian diet and one of the one of the findings of that study was that beef could be or meat in your diet can really be environmental especially if you're utilizing uh, marginal lands that aren't uh, suited for crops that are, you know, can be directly consumed by humans. If we take that sort of approach and we say, all right, we have these marginal lands where we can grow grass really well, and and cows can do a great job of converting that into protein for humans, and then we combine the renewable energy part on top of that. I, I you know, I totally agree. There's a lot of cool potential there. Again, it goes back to planning and not getting the cart ahead of the horse in terms of these projects being built before we have that kind of more strategically planned out.
0: I don't know if we can we can end on a better note than that. Haven't really given you an answer. I don't know if there are right answers to a lot of these questions, but we've given you lots of things to think about we really appreciate you being here, Joe. Nice to have talked to another extension person. We love talking to extension people in other states and making those connections. So thanks for being here.
1: Yeah, thank you. I kind of feel the same way about the article that I wrote. It doesn't really give answers, but just tries to frame the discussion.
0: With that, I think we're going to wrap it. Joe did write an article about this exact topic that we're talking about today. We will include that in the show notes. So look for that We'll also include it wherever we post anything about it on social media as well. So find that article. Wonderful, wonderful read. If you have comments, questions, scathing rebuttals about today's episode, please email the moosroom at umn.edu.
2: That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu.
0: Please check out our website, extension.umn.edu. Find us on Twitter at umnmoosroom and at farm safety. And with that, we'll cut the plugs. Thank you for listening this week, everybody. We will catch you
2: next week. Goodbye.